Our story from Scripture today comes from a few hours after Easter morning. It is a few days after the death of Jesus. You can imagine a room of disciples, women and men, single and married, people huddled together in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. Each has a crazy story to tell, something that has been happening to them throughout the day. Each has a few scraps of a tale, and they're not sure what the meaning is, what is happening, but they have to share it with each other. They feel it bubbling in their bones and their blood, and so they must share it and come together and talk about what they have seen. The story they have to share is something about Jesus, something unexpected. Let us listen to one of these stories. This is the gospel lesson from Luke chapter 24. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what were you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. And moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it. And gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. 
and then they told what they had happened to them on the road and how he'd been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After the resurrection, why is Jesus so weird? This is what Michael said when we were talking about the scripture a little earlier in the week. He pointed out Jesus never appears in front of a crowd after the resurrection. He only appears to a few people at a time. He walks through walls. He vanishes into thin air. He cooks up fish breakfast on the beach. All of these things, I promise, are in your Bible. If the disciples were really trying to convince us of Jesus' resurrection, they, wouldn't they have worked hard to get on the same page? Wouldn't they have tried to make it sound a little less odd, make it sound a little more logical? Indeed, it's true if you're trying to make the case that the guy you've been following wasn't crazy because he said he was the son of God, well, then it helps if you don't sound crazy yourself. It helps if you can construct a solid argument about his resurrection and that at least starts with everyone knowing exactly when they're going to say he showed up and where it was, not miles apart. But here we are, with several stories about Jesus showing up and shocking people. Here we are with weird little details that don't make sense, but which were important enough to pass along. Here we are in a story that does little to make us comfortable with the mystery of resurrection. Here we are, caught in a strange story about new life and redemption, revelation and hope. Here we are, and here is Christ. Christ shows up on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and an unnamed disciple. Cleopas shows up nowhere else in the scripture, and there are many theories about who Cleopas and his companion were. One theory that I particularly like posits that it was Cleopas and his wife who were walking. After all, women often go unnamed in the scriptures. And this theory says that the couple were probably both early followers of Jesus, and when they met this stranger on the road and got to the end of their journey, they invited him into their own house to sit at their own table. And then... Christ revealed himself to them, and just as quickly, he goes away. This word that we translate as vanish is more accurately translated as become invisible, which is a strange visual. Christ shows up, changes lives, offers these people food they didn't even know they were hungry for. They see him for who he truly is, their jaws drop open, and then he becomes invisible. He vanishes. They are left without proof or corroboration. They only have this stunningly odd story to tell. And tell it, they must. They run at that same hour back to Jerusalem, back to the place that killed Jesus just a few days before, back to the place where the other disciples are hiding out. Cleopas and his companion have a story to tell, and nothing can stop them from sharing it right now. They find the 11 and other disciples, others who have their own stories about messengers waiting at empty tombs. Perhaps they all start gushing. Perhaps they all are breathless. Perhaps they talk through the night. Perhaps they sit in silence. Perhaps they realize that this changes everything. 
Perhaps they just sit there, confused. Here in this upper room, in a city that is expecting all the disciples to flee in shame and grief, expecting that all these Jesus followers will just go home with their tail between their legs. Here in this city, hidden in an upper room, the men and women of Jesus start to talk, start to realize that something is happening, something that is full of hope and excitement and joy, something that is undeniably weird. Everyone has a story to tell about Jesus revealing a mystery of life and death that they aren't prepared to hear. Everyone has a weird, odd, strange little story to tell about Jesus coming back after everyone saw him die. Our scripture today, what happens to Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus, This story is not about some isolated spiritual experience between two individuals. This isn't about two people feeling warm and fuzzy about their personal relationship with God. No, this story is about good news that happens to two people and then how they cannot keep such good news to themselves. They cannot hold it back. This is a story of how they must return to Jerusalem, to their worshiping community. This is a story about good news, about a crazy, wondrous tale that cannot be kept quiet. After all, stories must have storytellers. For a story to remain alive, it must be told and it must be heard. It must be shared and it must be passed along. Otherwise, it will die. If a story is kept private, kept locked up between one or two people, then it slowly shrivels up into a secret. It becomes something to protect and defend rather than something to be offered and received. A story that is shared is a gift, a connecting strand. A story that is shared becomes a bond, a relationship, a woven web connecting you and me connecting past and present and future. We often think of the Bible as a rule book, a collection of lesson plans and instructional manuals, and some parts are more instructional. But the people I know, perhaps the people you know, who get the most out of life and faith, they are the ones who approach Scripture as a book of stories, stories that are true, even if they aren't always factual. Stories that tell us who we are and who God is and who is journeying with us along the way. The Bible is a book of stories that must be shared. The early disciples know this. That's why the two disciples were walking and talking, using the stories of Scripture to try to make sense about what had happened to Jesus and themselves over the last couple days. They know the power of stories because Jesus himself has shown them their power. With parables and psalms and the poetry like the Beatitudes, Jesus revealed over and over and over again the potency of his powerful story, that God's kingdom is at hand, that the people who feel the most on the edges of society are not abandoned but included 
woven into an immense tapestry of grace and love and redemption which spans generations. Jesus has shown them the power of telling tales that are true. So when Jesus shows up on the road after his death, he doesn't appear with a bang or a flash or loud applause. He doesn't arrive with trumpets or angels or any other convincing display of power. Jesus comes with a question and with a story. What things, he asks to Cleopas and his companion, what things are you talking about? What stories are you telling here on the road? And the disciples try to answer, telling Jesus the things that they had believed about God and redemption and each other. And they also tell Jesus things like their lost hope, their disappointment, their doubts and worries. And Jesus says, Ah, you slow, foolish storytellers, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a bigger story longer story, and he begins with Moses and the prophets, and he tells them a huge story of God's love stretching through time and space. And slowly, after hours and miles of listening, the disciples come to believe that they are not standing there with a secret that is shameful and private. They are standing there with a story a story that connects them with the prophets and poets and psalmists across the ages, a story that must be shared, must be shared with whomever will listen to this weird and wondrous tale. I wonder if you have ever had an experience of Christ while walking down the street or sitting at a table or talking with a stranger or friend. I wonder if you have ever had a moment when you realized that all you had believed had been turned upside down and inside out, that logic wasn't just unnecessary, but in this matter, it was useless, that mystery wasn't dangerous. Here, it was joyful. I wonder if someone has shown up in an unexpected way and made you feel deeply and undeniably loved and I wonder if it was weird. And I wonder what you did next. Did you keep this experience of love and joy to yourself? Did you lock it up in your own imagination, safe and sound from prying eyes and questions? Or did you call up a friend, text your mom, dash out an email or a letter, write out a journal entry, gush about it with companions over the dinner table? When we have a story of love and grace and Christ's presence breaking through clouds of disappointment and even despair, what do we do with that odd little story? Whom do we tell? The disciples run back to Jerusalem. They run that very same hour. And in that moment, when they have realized that Christ is alive, they realize they must be with their storytelling companions. They must be in the room telling weird stories of Christ's wonderful presence. Sometimes I wonder what would happen if we saw the church as the place where we come to share our weird and wondrous stories of Christ with one another. A place to share these odd moments when we say, 
you know, I recognize something about God and myself and my neighbor in that moment. Did you? Did you recognize it too? What was it like? What was your story? Jesus asks, what things? What things have happened to you? What things are you talking about? What things are you struggling with? What stories are you trying to make sense of? What stories have you ever given up on ever making sense? What things can you not keep to yourself but which you must share? What things, Jesus the Christ asks, and the beautiful thing is he really wants to know what we have to say. He wants to hear our story. The author Glennon Doyle Melton is a best-selling author and blogger with thousands showing up for her speaking tour and buying her book. Over time, she's become an unapologetically progressive Christian who claims the value of vulnerability, of honesty, of telling true and honest stories about Jesus, about herself, about her need for grace, about where she has found it in unexpected places, about her need for community. Her journey to fame began from a very simple Facebook post nearly 10 years ago. She shared 25 true things about herself, and it went viral. While other people were writing, number seven, I really like Sudoku, she was writing, number seven, I still really struggle with addiction and bulimia, and I feel like I never will fully get over it, but I really want to try. She offered herself up with vulnerability, and when she opened up her computer a few days later, she had hundreds of messages from people sharing their own stories of pain and love and need for grace. She had told a true story about herself, and it began a storytelling frenzy that she still is continuing on her tours. Here is another odd little story she tells. It might not be factual, but it is true. I am sitting in a quiet bedroom with God, we are alone, the two of us. I am perched on the edge of a four-poster bed, and my legs are dangling off the side. God is in a rocking chair across the room, and she's knitting. God knits, it turns out. She also rides a Harley, but never while knitting. I am mad at God, so I am glaring at her while she rocks and knits. She won't ask me what's wrong. I'm waiting for her to ask. I'm dying for her to ask. I sigh. I sigh as deeply and loudly and with as much angst as possible. Nothing from her. Nothing disturbs her peace. Nothing breaks her concentration. She is not curious. So I just start. I'm going to stay sick, aren't I? You're not going to heal me, are you? And I'll never have another baby, will I? In my marriage? What about my marriage? Is that going to crumble too? You're going to leave me sick and empty-armed and struggling, aren't you? Aren't you? I know you are. Please fix it. If you don't, that's it for us. I'm not kidding. I'll quit trying not to be a jerk. I'll quit writing. I'll quit talking to you and caring about other people and smiling so much. I'll spend all my money on fancy makeup and couches, and I'll spend all my time watching Real Housewives of Orange County. No, Housewives of New Jersey. <laughs> Take that. I'm serious. Friendship with you is too exhausting. 
I'm going to have to quit you based on principle and utter confusion. If you don't pull through for me this time, it's atheism for me. Atheism. I am serious. God keeps knitting. Then she smiles and holds her stitch for a moment. She looks up at me with her soft, crinkly eyes, and she says, Honey, you're so angry. I understand. I love you so much. Would you like me to stop knitting so we can talk about all of this? I think for a moment and look at the knitting in her lap. I gaze at the part that is done. It's breathtaking. All blue and green and hot pink and gold and silver. At first, the colors seem to swirl wildly. And then, suddenly, I recognize a pattern. The pattern is me. I am beautiful. Swirly, wild, and beautiful. No, I say, don't stop. Keep knitting. Because she's knitting my life, of course. I am what her hands are working on. And I want her to concentrate. I find I still trust her. God, I say, I'm going to dance. While you knit, I'm just going to dance. God looks up one last time and says, That's all I've ever wanted you to do, sweetheart. You dance, and I'll keep knitting. It's going to be beautiful, honey. I promise. What things, Christ asks? What things are you talking about? What stories are you telling? What stories can you not keep to yourself? What stories do you have to run to share? Because no matter where you run or no matter what you say, Christ is always, always, always willing to hear our story. And then Christ is always ready to tell us his and always, we discover again the gift of being storytellers. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, you show up in weird and wondrous ways, and we do not always have words for what happens to us. We do not always know what to do next. And so we gather together, and we seek your word among us, and we seek to recommit our lives as your disciples, your storytellers. Be with us here in this time and place, and be with us as we go forth with good news of love and grace for all. In your holy name we pray. Amen.